Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. That's when I realized, wait a second, there's like a lot of territory in the Bible that relates to the Nephilim that isn't really being discussed. And so that's why I said we got to really take our time and see how this is weaving through the entire Old Testament, right to the Gospels, right to the birth of Christ, right? It was all about up until that point, Satan was still trying to prevent the arrival of Messiah. And so that was a big motivation for it. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. We're joined today by author Ryan Peterson, and we're going to discuss some of his book, his first book, The Judgment of the Nephilim. One of the things that Ryan does a fantastic job of documenting all of Satan's attempts to try to corrupt the human genome. We had a really fun time talking with Ryan and love to have him back again soon. So enjoy. Morning. Good morning, Ryan. Hey, how's it going? How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks. Good to see you. Nice shirt. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Oh yeah. Nice. Yeah, man. So you're, you're in, uh, there there you go. (laughs) You're in New York, huh? So actually, I live in Dallas now. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so when I wrote my uh, first book, I was, I was born and raised in New York. I lived in New York all my life, but I uh, moved to uh, Dallas a few years ago. Yeah, so I've been here now for the uh, last several years. And, right. uh, it's been great. Yeah, nice. Well, Yeah, I'm just down the road from you uh, uh, off of uh, I-12, just north of New Orleans, Hammond, Louisiana. Okay. North, nice. The North Shore. Yeah. All right. Nice. Nice. Yeah, we yeah. go through Dallas, going to my uh, in-laws uh, in New Mexico. That's, oh, sure. Hit, I'm sure. Going yeah. through there, across, yeah. Amarillo, Forty. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Yeah, and uh, yeah. Luke and I grew up uh, here in Wisconsin, so uh, cool. he he likes the South, so he's been down there ever since uh, the Marines, right? So. I I I suffer, right. I suffer through the winter, but he's got the big bugs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I know, I know. I traded I traded out all that stuff a few years ago. That's I, right. I've shoveled many driveways, <laughs> many sidewalks in my day, That's... and I and I went to college in Rochester, New York, where it's pretty 
it's probably close to Wisconsin in terms of how cold and how much snow you get right there. Yes. It's pretty bad. So uh, I, I know that feeling. Yep. And it's amazing. I also have too. By the way, I, I am also a diehard Jets fan. Oh. So I'm very, very happy to have Aaron You're Rogers. You're happy to have Rodgers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, man. I, th- it seems like that's so people go to Florida to retire, but I guess if you're a quarterback in Green Bay, you go to the Jets. <laughs> you, go to, you, go to so, you go to the Jets. We're the retirement home. Man. Yo, I, I that's, Bring it. that's the villages. Now, as long as he doesn't go to the Vikings after his stint. That's right. Exactly. New York. Uh, <laughs> Which Barb did. Exactly. Oh, man. Yeah, I remember. I forget. Was it Glenn Beck's show or something? But they had that little. That little. Uh, that little, not ringtone. They had a little ditty. It was like, but Brett Favre and the Jets. And now you can say, you can say right. that about Rogers. Right. <laughs> well, good to have you on, Ryan. Thanks for thanks yeah. for joining us and making some time. Um, yeah, appreciate it very much. So, welcome, Ryan Peterson. So, you are author of several books. Um, Judgment of the Nephilim was your first one. Yes, Is that right. And then, uh, and then the, the follow up, the final Nephilim, which. I haven't read yet, but I've yeah. I got the Kindle and the Audible of your your first one, and I listened to that twice. Uh, there's time days at work that I can have it earbud in or something, and uh, I get through books yeah. way faster that way. So, <laughs> yeah, um, sure, sure, yeah. But w- the thing that struck me that I really liked about it was just how, like you said, you kind of took a slow walk through the Old Testament, and. Yeah really fleshed out all of Satan's attempts to mess with the seed of the woman, the mankind, the human DNA. And I had no idea, like, until you unpacked all of that, how many different ways that uh, that Satan um, was attempting to do that. Yeah, and that's the thing. And that was really, I mean, I had several motivations for writing the book, but, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I had done a deep dive like I'm sure both of you have into books, YouTube videos, podcasts on the Nephilim at that time, a few years prior to publishing the book and studying the Bible. I just thought, I just kept seeing more and more, you know, it was all God. God was just giving revelation and, and, and I'm, I'm the type of person where I can remember um, Rob Skiba, uh, the late Rob Skiba, yeah. uh, who wrote, you know, did a lot of great research on the Nephilim. Uh, he said one time I saw in the YouTube video, he said, you know, he said, well, the understanding that the sons of God in Genesis six were angels who supernatural who fornicated with women, human women, and literally had children. He said that was understood by Justin Martyr, you know, Irenaeus, Clement, all these. And, and I, it, for me, when I hear something like that, I will. Technical difficulties. Yep. It froze <laughs> for a moment. Back. Is he okay? All right, okay, there we go. Okay, sorry about that. My screen went black for a second. That's okay. But, um, <laughs> so you were saying when I when you hear something like what Rob Skiba was saying about the the early church fathers' belief, I need to know and find the exact quotes from them. Mm, That's just how right. Right, how right. I've been how God has wired my mind as a researcher, and so a lot of my work and my academic study was really research based. And so once I started doing that. That's when I realized, wait a second, there's like a lot of territory in the Bible that relates to the Nephilim that isn't really being discussed. And Mm -hmm. so that's why I said we got to really take our time 
and see how this is weaving through the entire Old Testament, right to the Gospels, right to the birth of Christ, right? It was all about up until that point, Satan was still trying to prevent the arrival right. of Messiah. And so that was a big motivation for it. Yeah, and, um, you know, obviously, uh, well, you probably know this, but we we discovered you from Blurry Creatures. So Luke, uh, my brother here, uh, um, not not Luke and Nate, but um, Luke, yes. uh, <laughs> Luke told me about, uh, which is, so it's funny, I'll just say this real quick. So, I have a brother named Luke, and uh, Luke and his wife have a dog named Pete. So <laughs> that's kind of funny. Anyway, but the circle is complete. The circle is complete. But um, no, so you know, Nate will say right that Bigfoot was the gateway drug to all this supernatural stuff and how it connects yes. to the yeah. Bible. For me, it was the Nephilim, and and Luke was the one that yeah. that showed me this probably ten years ago. Luke, I think. And I yep. remember, I remember just getting weirded out because I didn't have a paradigm for it. What was that? Yeah, kind of what pulled you in? Because I'm, I'm a big fan of Rob Skiba's stuff too from the past. Yeah, so you know when I first, um, you know, for me it was more getting into just prophecy heavy in general, and this is around 2006, 2007. And I, I as someone who grew up in the church. Kind of like UP, I didn't have a paradigm for a lot of the supernatural aspects. So I had a much more traditional, you know, we can, we talk about heaven and hell as supernatural, but nothing really beyond that in, ter- in terms of my upbringing in the church. And so that was really blowing my mind. And then I, I was very blessed to actually be given a, a, a DVD for free about the Nephilim from a ministry online. And that's not that's when I was really blown away because I was totally unfamiliar. I knew nothing about this. And I said, wow, I said, and then again, that really set me on the rabbit hole to start digging into it. And it was like, you know, you know, I've said this before. It was like, it's like going from like black and white TV to 4k and yeah. how I understood the old Testament. Cause now so much more of the old Testament not only makes sense, but just comes to life and understanding, wow, this is all about this war of these bloodlines. And it's not just random irrational actions by God that really, and you know, and that's why I want another, another big motivation is that of the book was that, I believe understanding Genesis 6 properly, the supernatural interpretation, it bolsters our witness because it's a love yes. story. The Bible is a love story itself, but it's not a love story where you have the kind God of the New Testament and the mean God of the Old Testament. It's the right. same God throughout who's right. repeatedly trying to rescue us and prevent us from our own self-destruction, right? Pulling us back from the brink of extinction, literally. And so... um that's uh it, it really once so for me yeah it was it really really blew my mind to understand and really grow grow closer to god because you know god wants us to know him yeah and this significantly helps us to understand god's ways yeah i think um yeah we do the bible and and christianity a disservice if we're dismissing those things right we don't have a good explanation when an atheist says oh look at your genocidal God killing off these tribes and the and the flood for that matter, right? So absolutely, yeah. I, I, and 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 come, I can tell you, uh, I mean, I've been in many many conversations with people who are Bible skeptics or atheists or just in a mood for a good debate with a Christian, mm-hmm. and that's almost automatically the first two things they're going to bring up is the flood wow. and the wars in Canaan and say, how can you justify this? Your God is saying, go and kill children. How can you justify that this God is good? And I don't think there's any good explanation. I've heard, I've heard many pastors try to explain yep. the wars in the book of Joshua without explaining the Nephilim. 
And it's never, it never makes any sense. At the end yeah. of the day, you're making God look irrational and evil. Yes. But when you understand that this is a rescue from genetic extermination, it changes everything. So it, it, it completely helps our witness to the unsaved world. Yeah, and um, I, I personally have a beef with uh, Augustine over, over some of that because that's I think he popularized some of that naturalistic yes. view. I also have a beef exactly. with some of his other theology that I won't get into, but uh, but yeah, I think I think you start to separate these things and try to fit in with the world's ideas, and you lose it. I think it was uh, the late Chuck Misler that said when when he looked at the Bible more literally, that things really started to come to life. And um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Maybe just real quick, I mean, then we can circle back into some of the Old Testament stuff. But since we're kind of on the on the topic of you know divorcing the Bible from the supernatural, um, yeah. I think you mentioned something about like the age of empiricism, maybe with uh, Nate and Luke on on their show. Uh, about removing the supernatural as evolution was becoming more popular. Definitely. So you get to the late, obviously the mid to late 1800s, obviously with Darwin, but then also, like you said, the empiricist and the enlightenment movement, Aldous Huxley, Helena Blavatsky, all of these uh, kind of, they are presenting themselves almost as secular scholars, but they're really spiritualists. They're all into spiritual, into spiritualism, but more from a Gnostic occult standpoint and but and they were raising strong arguments against the Bible. They were challenging Scripture and saying that basically, you know, it, it, you can't trust the Bible. It's it's basically just myth. And so a lot of the backlash to that, unfortunately, the reflex reaction in the American church was to move the supernatural out of the Bible and make it get to more practical, personal application style preaching and teaching of scripture and taking. So, so you really, the last commentary you're probably going to find in the very early 20th century is the Schofield Bibles, an old edition of a Schofield Bible will still mention the Nephilim in Genesis six, but you won't find it again in any commonly distributed book, right? There are some mm. books like Arthur Pink and other people, but in a commonly a book you'd find in a, in most seminaries is not going to mention the Nephilim at all. Um, once you get into the 20th century. And, and so, you know, all it takes is one generation of pastors, right? Oh, man. They're preaching right. churches all over America. Yes. They're teaching new pastors. And now by the time you get to 2023, you have pastors all over America who've never heard it. Their professors have never heard of the Nephilim. And so it's done. It's basically removed. And when people like us chart talk about it, we, they see us as fringe, even though, and, and a big part of what I wanted to show was this has been the understanding in the church since the first century. So right. I wanted to make, I build the case that this is, it's not fringe. It's actually orthodoxy, but we've just lost it in a century. But the church has believed this commonly. And that's why I go out of my way to provide the evidence that this was the understanding of the church. It was just a knee-jerk reaction to try and protect us from evolution. But we have nothing to worry about, right? We have the word of God. It's true. We should stand on it and not try to, to change it to accommodate the world. Yeah. Do you do you think the um, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls being found and the, its ties to the Book of Enoch was God's way of okay? I'm gonna impart this information to this generation that is going to need it in the last days. You know, to, to kind of maybe yeah. combat yeah, yeah. some of the stuff you're talking great, about. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's a great point. Dead Sea Scrolls played a huge role in all of this, right? Because a lot, it really spurred this whole generation of scholars before me, right? 
going back to Chuck Missler, Skiba, Michael Heiser, to get this interest in it. And so, yeah, I think God played a big role in in that revelation of it that obviously proves the Bible from a, from a literary standpoint that matches from thousands of years earlier, but also bringing back the super the text that re, that openly like Enoch obviously talks about this extensively that t- gets into the supernatural and reigniting the research in it and uh yeah so yeah I, I i definitely i definitely believe that to be the case also interesting that it was found in Qumran which i think is also connected actually to John the Baptist ministry this is going off topic but you talk about the voice crying out in the wilderness so it's almost like the voice again with the scrolls thousands wow. of years yeah. later in the wilderness, we find God's word there. So um, just a little side note. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, so I want to, I want to give you a, a little pet theory that I have. So in your book, you talk about um, the Jordan river as being maybe a more likely yes. area for the descent of the watchers versus Mount Hermon. Um, when I was kind of, that was intriguing to me. I was like, Hmm. So when I was kind of looking into that, finding out more about the Jordan, uh, the headwaters are at Mount Hermon. So I kind of wa- I kind of wonder if <laughs> if you and Enoch are both right. I don't know. <laughs> it's a very good point. Yes, it's true. It's true. It's they they they, they kind of connect to each other, right? They do. So um it could yeah. So uh yeah, I mean it, it, it and that could be the case. Like that that could be the case. And it's true. Like you they are they are connected. Um, I just wanted to make the point about the Jordan River because I just felt like it, the Bible is revealing over and over again, you know, there are so many supernatural occurrences at this river and this intersection of the heavenly and the earthly realm. I just gave, you know, the examples you have. Jacob's dream, just due west of the Jordan River at Bethel, where he sees the angels ascending on the ladder and descending to heaven. Again, this intersection. Uh Elijah raptured. He specifically went to the Jordan River to be brought to heaven in the chariots of fire. It was at that location that it had to happen. Then, of course, you know, you have the baptism of Christ, of the Lord, at the Jordan River, where heaven opens and God the Father speaks. So I really wanted to, I feel like it just was something that, again, when I see things I think aren't being discussed, that's what excites me. Yeah. I'm like, we we need to get this out and really flesh this out and get it into what we're in the discourse of, of our, of our doctrine. So, um, but yes, could it, could the connection to the Jordan, to the Mount Hermon mean that it's all kind of one location, one Roswell in Mexico in the Bible? Uh, It's possible. It's interesting. Yeah, it's it's possible. possible. Well, and the etymology, uh, let me just say this real quick, Luke. Um, The etymology is very interesting too, because you have, Jordan and Jared, meaning descent, right? And then you have um, Herman, which is the ban or anathema, like a curse, you know, because they were cursed. But go ahead, Luke. No, I was just thinking about um, Mount Herman and the transfiguration. I don't know know. which mountain the Lord was on with with his disciples when he transfigured. Refresh my memory. You it, guys it sh- remember? It should be Mount Hermon because that's the most likely place. Is that was that your understanding, Ryan? That it, that that would be the most, the closest yeah, large. Yeah, it was mountain. definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and there's a range there, so I think there's like actually three mountains there. But it's definitely, I'm definitely in that location. Okay, for sure of Mount Hermon. So it's definitely. I, I I would agree with that, right? And again, of course, we see the symbolism and, and what place. he's doing. Yeah. 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 And, and bees coming from heaven. Right. I mean, Moses and Elijah are there, you know, making an appearance. So, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I think it's possible. And I think, you know, it's interesting too. uh, 
looking at the etymology that maybe even, you know, because I think the names all are significant, right? And even going back to Rob Skiba, he was one of the first people who, who really highlighted that, 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 the, that, that this incursion took place in the days of Jared, right? Who, again, that root, Yerod, in Hebrew, is the same as Jordan, right? It's all going back to this descent, the place of their descent. And so could it be that it, the whole thing is almost a parable? You know, this is the place of their descent, where this curse took place because they violated God's genetic order. Mm-hmm. It could all be maybe all, all tied in one story. So, um, yeah, very interesting theory. It, yeah. Well, thanks. Um, that brings me to kind of the question of in Genesis six in those days and also afterward, right? I think that's commonly thought and Luke and I were just talking about it, um, before you got on, um, as the days of Noah, but I think it's, Enoch that describes that as Jared's life. Can you unpack that or maybe say why it maybe isn't talking about before and after the flood? Because even I'm listening to um, or I'm reading uh, Gary Wayne's book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. He's going to be on our our show in a few weeks. And uh, so I'm prepping for that. But but he but even he references that as the days of Noah versus Jared. Yes. Yeah, so, so yeah. So, I took a very different take on that. The the grammar of that passage, uh, and again, because I think we're a lot. It's one of those things where we almost take it for granted from our perspective on the other side of the flood. Whereas, you know, if you look at the context of Genesis six, where it says after that the, the flood hasn't even taken place yet, right? Right. So, I think it's specifically talking about. The union, right? The subject of that verse, there were giants in those days and after that when the sons of God came into the doors of men. So to me, it's talking about this incursion happened and there were giants at the time it happened. And then again, because it continued until the flood. So I put that after that, but all before the flood. I don't think it's I don't think that's a, a demarcation of, yeah, before the flood and after the flood, there were giants. I take a totally Kind of different take, and I think the grammar supports that because I don't know how that could refer to the flood when the flood has literally not been referenced yet in yeah. the Bible. So timeline wise, um, let's see here. I pulled this up. So Jared lived. Let's see here, nine hundred sixty-two years. So he was Enoch's father, right? Uh, exactly. The, the good, the good, the good Enoch, not the, not the. The Enoch. good Enoch, not yeah. the not the bad Enoch yeah. of Cain, um, and then sure. and then Methuselah was uh, born of Enoch, and when he died, that was yes. that was that was the doomsday clock, right? Methuselah, exactly. Uh, died. exactly. His okay. whole and his name was the prophecy, right? His name when he dies, it shall come is the Hebrew translation of yeah. Methuselah. So it's it's he was the literal walking doomsday clock to the earth of its destruction in the flood. And, you know, so, so just to go to this timeline here, because you're pointing out all the right things, right? So we know, obviously, like I said, Jared was the father of Enoch. Enoch, we know from the book of Jude and from, and from Genesis, right? He was the seventh generation from Adam. And so how I can isolate that to say, yeah, in the days of Jared, his father, is that what I point to is Genesis chapter 4. Because I believe the Bible identifies what I call the first family of the Nephilim. Who were the who were the, the family? Where, where did this actually start? I think the Bible identifies it, and it's Lamech, 
the evil Lamech, not the good Lamech, the evil Lamech who's detailed in Genesis 4, the lineage of Cain, who's the seventh from Adam through Cain's lineage. So again, we're, we're, we're lining up timeline-wise with Jared and Enoch. They were cousins, right? So Lamech is the seventh. So he's Enoch's cousin in the same generation. And of course, Jared's still alive at this time. He's still, he's still living at this time. And so when you look at, at, at the account of Lamech, and this is what I call a special reference in the Bible, where you see these genealogies, and it's one father leading to a son, leading to the next son. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and so on. In Genesis, certain figures have two verses, three, four verses about one particular patriarch or generation. And that, to me, is the Bible telling us something historically significant happened in this generation. When you get to Lamech, there are six verses about him. And, and you know, so I believe he was the forefather of all. He was the family, the patriarch. When the angels came down and approached, it was him, him that the, the sons of God, the Benaiha Elohim, went to to make this transaction to take a woman's hand in marriage for fornication. And I think the details there, it's amazing this, in this short passage, the details you get. One, it, text, it says that he had two wives, right? He was a polygamist, right? Ada and Zilla. So right out of the gate, he is violating God's normal order for marriage, which is one man, one woman, eternally cleaved. He then brags about killing a man who hurt him, right? He kills a man and is bragging about it to his wives, and even mocks God by saying, you know, if Cain's avenged sevenfold, then Lamech's 70 and sevenfold. So the, the, mocking what God said about his protection to Cain after Cain sinned and killed his brother. And then when you look at his, his offspring, all his children are described, which you don't see in any genealogy. All three of his sons, Jabal, Jubal, Tubal Cain. And then you see this is what I call this technological explosion, right? And I think this that what happens here is, is it's a transaction of forbidden knowledge from the fallen angels in exchange for a woman's hand in marriage. You see, J. Bull, you see, he was the father, the inventor of animal husbandry and tent making, right? So this is, again, at, in the ancient world, this is revolutionary science and technology. Jubal, the father of music, instruments, and then Tubal Cain, the father of blacksmithing, says he was an artificer of metal. He could blacksmith, make tools, make weapons, all in this one family, all this intellectual knowledge out of nowhere. And then not only do you see all three sons described, it says the sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. And I believe Nama was the first woman that the Bible is pointing to her to say this was the woman. And her name means beautiful, by the way, right? The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, right? It wasn't just about genetics. They also, these women were attractive to them, sexually attractive. And so I believe the Bible is telling us, revealing in this small detail that this was the first woman who married a fallen angel and was the first mother of a Nephilim giant. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's, it lines up with the days of Jared and Enoch on Earth. That's right, and it's it's incredible how much because um, you know a lot of the way the Bible's written is is in kind of that narrative, and they'll talk about some incredible event and just give it give give you the driest like here are the facts <laughs> and move right on right. And there's so much. I think it was Mike Heiser that said he he could spend a lifetime. Uh, on the first 15 chapters of Genesis and never, never get <laughs> exactly. bored, never get bored. But um, you've probably heard this too. I think it was Rob Skiba that, that, that pointed out the, the, the meaning of the, of the first uh, patriarchs 
um, from Adam to to Noah, I believe, or maybe yeah. Um, so you've probably heard this, but if you take all those those names, um, it says man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed Lord shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. And that's all of those names, you know. Um, that's right. Right to Noah. Yeah. yeah right to yeah, Noah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing. And that's the, uh, and that's why, again, you already said it, right? Right. Why it's so important to take that slow drive because there's so many details, you know, and God tells us this, you know, I, a lot of times, you know, people say, I, I get a lot of uh, feedback from people. <laughs> a lot of times people say, oh, you know, you know, you talk about these mysteries. There's no mystery in the Bible. There are no secrets in the Bible. You know, you stop trying to say, you know, but actually that's, that's exactly the opposite of what God says. Yep. That there are mysteries, right? That God says he reveals them to his children. God says he is concealing things in the Bible. It is his so glory. the glory of God to yes. conceal a thing. He's that's getting right. glory out of that. But we have mm-hmm. to search it out, right? right? And that's what it's about. It's about digging deep into the Bible, getting into the text. And so I really wanted to emphasize that, you know, a passage you may have read, right? Most Christians have made it to Genesis chapter four, right? So it's just three pages in and you're in Genesis chapter four, but you breeze through it. And it's like, wait a second. In these six verses, you're getting a lot of information about what took place in the most, in the story of salvation, right? This was the devil's attempt to stop the Messiah. And it's right there. And so that's why I think taking our time and really going back and looking at these passages again, gives so much revelation and again, it's what God wants us to do, right? Yeah. So. Well, let's let's go to the beginning. So you talk about sure. um, Eden as potentially the city of Atlantis. Am I getting that right? That there might be some connections there, and then Gilgal Raphaim. I'm, I'm trying to recall how you how you described yeah, it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. So. Excuse me. Yeah. So the answer is yes. I really think that the account. Of Atlantis, as written by Plato uh, in Critolus, uh, is completely just the Greek take on the days of Noah. That, that that's where it's coming from. This this is all the and what I show is the parallels between the account right from Plato's own words, where you have Atlantis itself was built by a god who came down from the heavens and fell in love with a, a human woman. He made he built the city for his human wife, his Poseidon, and her and his sons, who were hybrid offsprings, right? And so he has his five sons. So he builds this supernatural city that's that's uh, uh, essentially uh, it's supernaturally constructed. So I go back to Eden, right? God created Eden. So God planted a garden in the midst of Eden. So that's it's a divine creation brought down to earth, right? So so right there you have a parallel. Plato talks about the minerals that existed in Atlantis. It was abundance in, min- in minerals, right? In the Garden of Eden, it talks about gold, bdellium, onyx, right? It says that the rivers that run around it have, the, they have these minerals, right? Eden had uh, every species of animal. What do is the first thing Adam is told to do? Name all of the animals. So we're seeing all these parallels. And then, of course, you have the history, right, that eventually... Atlantis becomes corrupt because you have all these gods fornicating with human women and they become greedy and full of, uh, 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 they become obsessed with wealth and violence. 
And then eventually Atlantis has to be supernaturally destroyed by a flood. And of course, again, Genesis 6, the testimony is the earth is filled with violence. Every man's thought was only evil continually. And why? Because you have the mass of fornication between fallen angels and human women. The Nephilim were overrunning the world, this genetic and spiritual corruption. And of course, they're both destroyed by a flood. So to me, it's like, it's very obvious that again, we're seeing an exact parallel. This is just taken from Genesis 6. And how I connect it to to Gilgal Raphaim, which of course is a, a, a megalithic structure in, the, in what is now known as the Golan Heights, is this is this structure, which is older than Stonehenge, is about 40,000 to 45,000 tons of basalt stones that have been brought up to this hill and arranged in five concentric circles with this temple or shrine in the middle. And I actually, in the book, I actually show an image of Gilgal Raphaim, an aerial image, so you can see the actual shape of it, and then an, an illustration from the 19th century of Atlantis based on Plato's description, and it's the exact same thing. Five concentric circles with a temple castle in the middle on a little island. It's the exact same shape. Is that know. is that a, a, a form of a circumpunct, as I've heard Dr. Laura Sanger talk about? The circle within a circle? Yeah, yeah the circle, yeah. It could, it could be connected to that as well, right? Okay. It could be connected to that as well. And then for those, again, Gilgal Raphaim, I should have said, means wheels of the giants and so i believe that the ancient history that the, the quote-unquote lore of that structure is that it was built by giants in ancient times and in the golan heights of course from a biblical standpoint is the area known as bashan where you find king og who of course moses led the israelites to fight against in numbers chapter two and it says his bedstead was 13 feet he was a nephilim right. giant so in the exact area where the nephilim once roamed, you have this structure that's, you know, four to 5,000 years old, and it just so happens to match Plato's description. So it's all a connection, I think, that of this, this the, the days of Noah, the worship, the fallen angels, and, you know, what Atlantis, it's all connected. So I think, again, I think the Atlantis is just a retelling of that. And the church fathers agree with that as well. Okay. Do, do you, would you st- take it a step further and say that it's actually the location of both? Do you think that they are actually physically? Yes. Okay. Yes. And of course, right. And, 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 and again, right. What we, Atlantis is also commonly known as the lost city of Atlantis, right? Cause it was lost in the flood. And I believe Eden itself was lost in the flood. So, okay. wow. <laughs> that is fascinating. Um, yeah. So going to, uh, I guess going to, yeah, sticking with Eden, um, so one of the questions that I've been wrestling with as we've been going through this show now here, we're, we're just about, I think this will be episode 29 once it, uh, releases, but is, uh, when did Satan fall? And I'm, I'm personally at the point where I feel like it's possible that his first sin might've been in the garden, but I'm not sure. Can you, can you, is there, is there some, um, biblical or other research that you found that that kind of says when this happened because i know the common thing that we're taught or or in the church is right he took a third of the angels and mike kaiser points out that that didn't happen until the time of messiah's birth so maybe i don't know what 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 would you have to to unpack that a bit yeah so i i definitely take the position that satan's fall predated adam and eve and and I, and you know, there, there, 
I, I, you know, there are numerous reasons. I'll start with what I think is a reason that I've never, we go back to what is the explanation? Do we have a good explanation for this? And that's Ezekiel 28, which I believe is definitely a passage that I call an esoteric passage that while it's addressed to the king of Tyre and the prince of Tyre, I believe it's really referring to the devil, right? Where it says that, you know, thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God that's referring, I believe that's referring to the devil when he was in Eden, since he was perfect in all his ways. So at that, at that point, when he was in Eden, because yeah, I'm with you on that passage. So he had not fallen. Would you say that he was still exactly good? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what scripture is saying, right? right? It says thou was, perfect in all thy ways and even it describes the stones that he's wearing the nine stones the carbuncle the topaz right these are again you look at those nine stones just go to the book of exodus when aaron has to put on his breastplate all those nine stones are mentioned as what aaron had to wear to wear before going into the most holy place in the tabernacle before god so I mean, I believe scripture is screaming to us that the devil was doing the same function. He wore those same stones. In the Septuagint, it's even more stones. But in the Masoretic, it's just nine, but it's the same stones. Um, Nine of the 12 that Aaron wore. And again, I believe it's telling us over and over again that it's complimenting him at first, right? Saying you seal up the sum, perfect in wisdom and perfect in beauty. But then it says... Thou was perfect in all thy ways until iniquity was found in thee. And so I will cast thee out. So he was there in this high position, basically serving almost in a high priest role. But then because of his sin, then he's cast out. And I I punished you. I cast you out. And so I say, you know, to those who um, think that Satan's fall was after the creation of Adam and Eve, I said, well, when did this happen? Where do you place Ezekiel 28 in the biblical timeline? Because I can't, I, I just don't see that taking place after Adam and Eve were in the garden. Because obviously, before Adam and Eve sinned, the devil is already evil. He shows up in Genesis 3 evil. So it can't be that he was still good at that point because he's clearly already wicked when he's first introduced in Genesis 3. So to me, that that means it has to be, it has to predate Adam and Eve. Okay, okay. I would agree with you, yeah. Ryan. Um, I, I I'm of the same opinion, and I've heard it described that, um, in Satan's fallen state, he's observing creation, the Genesis story. So we we don't know exactly what took place in in the world because the the Bible doesn't describe all the details, but it does say Earth was was there that was void there was water there was it was almost in this desolate say, state and it's so that's kind of intriguing but it's also Absolutely. interesting that that satan observed god forming man so he saw the creation of man he saw the creation of eve so he's seeing some of the this amazing supernatural things that God is doing. And I wonder if he understood a little bit what was taking place when it comes to the genetics, because you look at the seed war and then you see how he's, you know, making this attempt and influence in the watcher angels and he's using genetics to, to corrupt. Now they're not pure humans anymore. And I'm creating all this mess that's just causing the judgment of the flood and, so it makes me wonder if he kind of recognized some stuff there and it's like, okay, you know, 
And then, yeah, and then absolutely right. And then Genesis <laughs> three with the judgment, yes. right? That God yeah. says about he, he gives a little hint how you Satan how you're going to be, yes. you know, taken out. And he's like, okay, I'm going to take my previous knowledge and I'm going to use that to fight God genetically. Uh, it's just. That's wild. Defin- it's it's like, a, what is it? L.A. Missouli talks about it. it's a cosmic chess match. You exactly. Know? Exactly. And, and, and I think you're absolutely right. And I say, I think the creation of Adam and Eve sent shockwaves through the fallen angelic realm. Right. They, like you said, they witnessed this creation. And then God says, let's make them in our in our image in the divine image, right? Which I don't think was said about the angels. Like we are made as humans in God's image. And so then at that point, you throw in everything you said and also the potential that, wait a second, they could replace us. Right. So now there's even more incentives. Not only so, hit, so hit on that right of, there. Replace us. What are you referring to? That the humanity, humanity could replace the fallen angels in God's order. That's, that's exactly right. And then you said it a second ago, talking about the imagery Satan had this priestly role, and then what did God do with the Israelites? It was it was right in Satan's face, like wow. <laughs> these humans are replacing you, you know, exactly. in this priestly role. Exactly. And now yeah. it's not just the Le- Levitical priests anymore. We're all called as priests and uh, servants unto the Lord. There's Amen. Another, yeah. Amen. So, Amen. Wow. Ryan, have you heard this idea, or maybe you've talked about it, about um, Satan not wanting to, like, like when God created Adam and Eve, like there was this idea that the angels would have to serve us in some way. Was there like, oh, I'm look at me, I'm not going to stoop to that level. I've heard people talk about that, but I'm not sure where they're getting it. Uh, it's same. I've I've heard it, and I. See, I don't know what any textual basis for that. I think okay. it's much more in line with what Luke is talking about, right? That, that idea that this is competition for us rather than God saying, you must now serve Adam. It's just, it's just never said. I don't see it in any biblical or apocryphal text. So, yeah. So, I, I think it's much more about they, they're a threat to our position. They can replace us. And, of course, we're told that our judgment is going to come through one of them. Yeah. I've even said it. I've, I've even heard it said, speaking of of future when the bride of Christ is taking out, you could call it the rapture taken off this earth earth. And we're brought up into the second heaven. I've heard it described that Satan and his minions is, is in the second heaven. That's where they're, they're kind of in that position. So prior to, so I'm, I'm going down that road where the rapture is before the, actual judgments on the earth and revelation sure it's the church coming up to the second heaven that displaces satan and brings him down to earth it's like it's that replacement and uh, that we're talking about you're being displaced literally out of the second heaven you're going down to earth earth and you're about to be judged and now the bride is up in you know up there now obviously there's still believers on the earth we know about the 144,000 and the witnesses and that type of thing but it's interesting how that takes yeah, place and you, well. yeah no i want to absolutely agree right and i do place the rapture before the judgments of revelation but just at the sixth seal that's a, I, I take a kind of a unique position but that's that where a, i put it in, 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 is that a, i'm sorry is that a mid-trib 
like the halfway it's through not, the seventh. It's oh, not. Okay. So I believe I believe everything starts at the sixth seal. So there's no the supernatural judgments of Revelation, whether you call it the Great Tribulation or the seven years. I believe it all starts at the sixth seal, but we are raptured at that point. So we go up, right? They come down. And then additionally, if you think about it, right, so something I talk about in my second book a lot is the scroll of time, this idea that God is repeating events intentionally to show us that he knows the end from the beginning, which he declares in Isaiah 46, verse 10. And think about the wars in Canaan, right? God says when you go, not only where they conquer them, God says, I've given you cities you have not built, homes that you've not construct. right? It's all about God's like, I'm... You're going to not just wipe them out. You're going to take over a whole kingdom that you right. did not build, right? So it's the same idea, right? We're going up to heaven to take over where they used to live, where they used to dwell. Now it's being given to us. So I think even that is a, what I call a, a quantum repetition of biblical history that we're going to live out one day. So Yeah, I think that ties in a bit to the already not yet eschatology right <laughs> that that, that yeah. things repeat right like david was a type Absolutely. of christ and all this sort of thing For sure um and i don't want to necessarily get into it just yet because i think we could do a whole show on it but i, I at some point i do want to pick your brain on eschatology because you know i was i was challenged i'll just say this real quick um Brian Gadawa has the, the the preterism view that these things have largely been fulfilled up until I think is it Revelation sure. twenty or twenty two something, and as I I dug into that I found some very good uh, Mike Winger if you've ever watched him on YouTube he has a really good video on this basically six different types of eschatology but yeah just to just to make the point that I think there is a lot of like you said repeating and and a partial fulfillment and then a, a later fulfillment, things like that. Yes. But yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's see. Uh, Nephilim after the flood. So <laughs> we've gone round and round on this on, on a, a few different ways. I know there's some that say um, the giants survived, but I, one of our early episodes we did, we, we dug into that text of Genesis, and it's crazy how redundant God is in saying over and over all flesh. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm convinced, like, it was, it did the job. Yes. Like, God didn't, well, you know, they didn't yeah. hide in a cave or something, but, or uh, have a, a gas mask. <laughs> But um, what, hanging on the ark on the outside. Yeah, hanging on the ark like uh, yeah, Gilgamesh or whatever. Um, so so um, and I th is, am I correct? Do you you assume that it was it was thorough that it did the job? I do. Yeah, okay, for the exact same reason. So right? we're yeah. so we're left with either a second incursion, third incursion, or genetically through you know some have said Ham's wife. So. Um, which is kind of where I land, but what would you say for those two things, yay or nay, what what would you point to for those? Yeah, so I, I, I agree with you uh, that I believe it was through Ham's wife, and I think there's there are actually several compelling reasons, and I'll share a, just a couple. So one is um, when you look uh, – and I show that and I really flesh this out in Judgment of the Nephilim. When you look at the giants after the flood, the post-Diluvian Nephilim, they can all be traced back to Canaan. Their lineage can be traced back to Canaan. I'll get you know uh, easy example, right? Do, do, uh, Numbers 13, right? The sons of Anak, 
Ahiman, Seshai, Talmai, and the 12 spies, and 10 of them say, hey, we saw these giants. We were like grasshoppers in their sight, and they don't want to go fight uh, the land of Canaan, you know, the, the Canaanites. We're told, obviously, their father is Anak. It says they are the sons of Anak, the father of the Anakim, who are like kind of the gold standard of giants throughout the scriptures, right, after the flood. So they, they, these, the Emians were as tall as the Anakim. Um, in Joshua, we're told that Anak was the son of Arba. In Genesis, you find out that Arba is one of the sons of Heth. Heth is the son of Canaan. So the Bible is showing us that the, those giants who were on that who's the, who scared the 12 spies, or 10 of the 12 spies anyway, they are direct descendants of Canaan. So we know his genetics came through on the ark, right? Canaan is the son of Ham. So he that so, so so again that's so that's one thing I point to that the, and you can do this time and time again with these giants that they trace back to Canaan and then if you think about it too, isn't it interesting when you go talk about you know Luke you mentioned earlier the cosmic chess match that after the flood what does the devil do he takes his nephilim after the flood and puts them right in Israel right so now in order if you want to get in here you got to get through my super soldiers right because that was like the choicest land and I I. I thought that, oh, how, how good of God to be like, oh, of course they want to go here, but that's because I'm going to give it to my people. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, exactly. Satan's observing all of this. He's observing exactly. the, the covenant between God and Abraham. So he already knew, in my mind, where the promised land was. He's like, okay, Definitely. thank you for telling me. I'm just going to put all my troops there. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And what is that land called? It's called the land of Canaan. So the whole land, right? That's not God. God didn't give it that name, right? <laughs> they, they, but it's called the land of Canaan, right? And to me, things like that get me so I I I I have to spend nights on that because I'm like, you know, Canaan is to me is the most mysterious figure in the Bible because you have his name mentioned over 164 times in the Old Testament, and he's never described. He's never quoted. And there's no action of Canaan. Well, Canaan went and ate dinner. He's never described doing anything, yet his name is all over the Old Testament, and the promised land is named after him. So there has to be something about him. And right? the curse. And I believe right. he, And the curse. The curse after Ham went in Noah's tent and did whatever he did. We know he did something bad. There's a debate about that, but we know it was bad, right? When Noah was drunk and naked in his tent, yet the curse came on Canaan. Right. Who was not? I don't believe Canaan was in the tent. I don't think Canaan had anything to do with that particular event. But yet Noah cursed Canaan. I believe that's because he was already demonstrating the Nephilim genetic traits, and that's why he's cursed. And and, and, and his Can descendants. And, and Canaan was the son of Ham. Yes. So, yes, so I believe it's possible. It's possible because I know there's different theories of was it a second incursion? Was it genetic? But I was wondering if if it was a certain sin, like, cause when you willfully do certain sins, you're open yourself up to the enemy. Right. So is it possible that on Noah's Ark, everything was the way God wanted it. He wanted to be fruitful and replenish the earth and all that type of stuff. But the sin of ham opened the door to the enemy. And then the curse took place through his generation, the sins of the forefathers be passed on. And, and now you got, he opened the door by his sin, opened up the door for the enemy to, to do some things. That's a very interesting theory. I, and I, and I definitely agree with you that there is a, um, 
there's a physical aspect to sexual sin that you're not just, it's not, of course it's sin in the spiritual sense, but you're doing something to your body as well, or opening your body up to some type of corruption um, through fornication. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's very, I think that that's, a, that's, that's possible. I didn't really think about that. One thing I'll say that I think adds to the potential that it could be a wife is, and again, let's go back to the kind of the lineage, the genealogy details in Genesis is that, again, going back to these lineages, you see with the patriarchs, again, we talked about Lamech and Methuselah, Enoch, Jared, because of the different lifespans, the, the prolonged lifespans before the flood, most of these patriarchs had their first child at about 50, 60 to 70 years old. And I believe that's because men went to went into puberty much later because the lifespans were much longer. And that's pretty consistent until you get to Noah. Noah does not have his first son till he's 500 years old. And I think there's a reason for that. And why does that matter? Because again, he gets on the ark at 600. So I believe God gave 120 year probation. He tells Noah 120 years, right? Then if this doesn't change, I'm going to judge the world. Noah, of course, starts building. So it's not till 20 years after he's building that he has Shem, his first son. And by that time, the testimony of scripture, God says three times, all flesh had corrupted itself. So again, the odds of finding three women who had no, who were all Tamim, like Noah, perfect in their generations, when God's telling us all flesh, even the animals, everything's corrupted, I think was slim to none to find three women of marrying age for his sons who had no Nephilim DNA in their blood, essentially. And so I think that's another factor. And I think the reason why Noah waited so long was because I think, you know, you remember uh, Noah would know about the prophecy of Methuselah, right? That's his grandfather, that when he dies, the earth, the world's over. And then Enoch, of course, is prophesying a judgment coming, that God's going to come and judge the earth. So I think Noah probably thought, I'm not, the world's about to end. I think that that's why he didn't have children at all, because he thought the world is going to end in my lifetime. When my grandfather dies, it's over. But then once God tells him, no, I'm going to choose you to restart the earth. You're going to build an ark. You are going to live. Then he has children because right. now he knows, oh, I am going to survive this. Now I can have a family. Wow. And so I think that's why he waited that's so long yeah. before anyone else did. Because he's the only person who does that before the flood. Well, so Dr. Laura Sangers talked about uh, epigenetics. And, and maybe sure. – so maybe all three wives potentially, right, had uh, a dormant – um, Nephilim DNA, and and to Luke's point, what I kind of think is the the iniquity of Ham led to that switch being turned on, right? And so now those traits can, yeah. traits can ex- express themselves. Some some have even said Absolutely. I think that that maybe Canaan showed showed some traits. I don't know, but yeah, no, and, that's that's a very that's interesting. I can definitely see that. Because I, I talk about what I think that's what happened, right? Uh, I think that's what actually happened to the Banacha Elohim, the sons of God in Genesis 6. I believe their bodies changed and degraded because of this sin. And that's why when they're released at the fifth trumpet, they're, you know, they're, they're grotesque. They're called locusts. They have hair of a woman, face of a man, teeth of a lion, because their bodies actually change because of the sin. So again, it's kind of like epigenetics, right? It's trick. The sin triggered the genetic expression to physically change them. Plus they've been sitting in the abyss for 
for how many thousands of years? <laughs> exactly. That'll do a number. Yeah, that too. And outer, so when you're when you're out of God's presence, you yeah, know you're, yeah. you're in this. You need you need a place. makeover. Yeah. You, you're degraded, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, you think about it, that's a great point. I mean, because you think about it, right? I talk about too, like Moses, right? Moses spends forty days in God's presence, and he's not seeing God directly, and yet he still comes down glowing, reflecting God's light, right. even though God's still in a cloud, and he still was glowing when he came down. Are Are you familiar with uh, Daniel Duvall at all? He's been on Blurry Creatures a couple times, but no, I'm not. He He, he says that he has a kind of a gift of seeing into the spiritual realm, and he described what demons look like as opposed to angels. And they are quite disfigured and grotesque, you know, from degrading, obviously being half, you know, uh, human and, and, and angelic. So they they don't have as good, we could say, maybe as good a DNA as an angel, right? But, yeah, and they're quite ashamed, he said, of their their appearance. That's just it's kind of interesting. I, I believe that. I would definitely agree with that. And, and, and again, it's that, you know, the whole... Um, idea of spiritual inheritance right right we we inherit the corrupt nature of adam right and adam all die right because we have literally inherited his corrupted spiritual nature uh for the nephilim they have both they have adam's corrupted sinful nature and then the corrupted sinful nature of a fallen angel combined so they are like doubly degraded so that i, I would agree with that that obs- that's observation he had into the spirit realm so, so speaking of the the chess match and maybe the kind of the thinking or the uh, that Satan was having with influencing the Watchers and creating a hybrid race, I wonder if he had an understanding of the he understood some of the the laws, the spiritual laws that that governed um, even God, what he was his playbook was. So I'm wondering, I think Tim Amberino talks about this, that it was, that's why Jesus had to come as a man to fulfill the law and then be that perfect sacrifice. So I wonder if Satan knew that in order, that humans had dominion here, right? So it was going to take a human or a part human, a hybrid human, that is going to have dominion and he was maybe trying to overthrow it by, well, the laws. You know, I've got my race here. They're hybrid, but they're still part human. And they can, you know, take over what was destined for, for humankind. And that usurper is the final Nephilim. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, that's the whole thesis of my second book. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I agree. Okay. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah. We'll do that right. another that's episode. Final, yeah. so, yes, <laughs> I agree. That it has to be, the, you know, whoever is going to rule the earth, right? It comes down to Christ or Antichrist, right? That's the ultimate choice in the Great Tribulation, right? You're choosing one of the, there's no in between, there's yeah. no atheists anymore. And so, um, right, but is that, that the, the ruler has to have humanity in him literally like has to has to have humanity to rule over earth so i think you're absolutely right and alvarino's right yeah um going again going back to kind of that second incursion idea so what would you say um doesn't fit about that or what i don't know if you have any ideas about what evidence might work that way because i know in in gary wayne's book he talks quite a bit about the amalekites 
and them not having a genealogical table to trace. And so he's like, ah, here we go. This this one didn't come from Canaan. I don't know what your thoughts are on that and, and other second incursion theories. Yeah. So um, so I, I so so uh, again, I, I don't agree um, with the second incursion. It's fine. I, I, I've met Gary. I've been on shows with Gary Wayne. Love him. L.A. Marzulli is a very good friend of mine. We talk all the time and we take different positions on it. However, what I'll take a different spin for what I use as biblical evidence to disagree with the second incursion. And I believe that Ezekiel chapter 31, um, I call another esoteric chapter, just like Ezekiel 28, just like Isaiah 14. I believe God is speaking to an angelic being. And I think uh, that that passage is talking to the preeminent angel, the angel who led the Genesis 6 rebellion, who's called the Assyrian in the Old Testament. And in that passage, that Ezekiel 31 is detailing the rise and fall of this fallen angelic king who lived in the days of the flood. And it's using this uh, illustrative language of a tree. It's comparing him to a tree and saying that he had many branches and all the nations dwelt under his shadow. It's very similar to what we see in Daniel, in Daniel chapter four with Nebuchadnezzar, where he has the dream of a tree that's mighty and has all these branches and all this fruit. And the, and the watcher angels want to cut it down. And Daniel says, the tree in the dream is you, Nebuchadnezzar. You are the tree. It represents your greatness, your kingdom. It's almost the exact same language about this angel, the Assyrian. And it even references the Garden of Eden. It says the trees in the Garden of Eden couldn't hide and they all envied him for his beauty, for his might. So he was the most powerful. I believe it's talking about the angels, the fallen angels in the days of Noah in Eden. And the clincher for me is that it says that he was judged and it says in the days that he was judged, God says, it says, I sent him down to the nether parts of the earth when the flood waters abated. So it's directly referencing the Garden of Eden. At this point in the episode, my computer randomly restarted. And so I lost a little bit of the conversation while Luke and Ryan chatted. And then it picks back up here. Podcast. He's naming all this stuff. He has. I go, I, I go, I know so many people. And I go, I've never heard this guy's name before. I'm like, Bob. I'm like, he's on cable TV and this and that doing prophecy. I'm like, but then I realized I looked him up. I'm like, oh, he works with Gary Stearman. So yeah. it was really through then. So they, so I literally, they connected with me literally the first day my book was published. So I FedExed, once I knew it was a Gary Stearman, I FedExed it to him immediately. Yeah. And then, um, I sent him the book and Gary really loved it. And then um, he said, hey, uh, you know, we shared your book with L.A. Marzulli. He wants to talk to you. And Very so they, cool. they totally connected with me. And then L.A. actually came to New York City with his wife. Uh, and, uh, you know, we went out to dinner. And it was it was real. It was surreal. I went from like literally wild. just being totally unknown. And then like two months later, I'm in New York having dinner with L.A. Marzulli. Yeah, it, was like, yeah, nuts. Yeah. it was really nuts. But they Prophecy Watches, that ministry has been an amazing blessing to me because they found me out of nowhere. And, wow. and, and and really helped give me a platform to, to God open the door. It was all God. Yeah. It was all it was yeah. all, all all God. So I, I I always say too, like they probably think I'm a broken record because every time I speak at a Prophecy Watchers conference, I always say, anytime these guys call me, I'm there. If they call me, listen, <laughs> we're doing a conference, you know, in Uganda. I'm gonna be there. I'm getting on a plane. We're going. We wherever it's happening, it doesn't matter. So because they've been an amazing, amazing blessing to uh, everything I've done as an author. Yeah. Awesome. 
How are you right. doing, Pete? All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to search for for where it's saved. I, I was saving all along, so it should be fine. But we'll just pick up where you were where you were leaving off there with. Um, Kind of wrapping up about yeah yeah sure I got the, it yeah yeah yep. the clincher of the the second incursion so um, what about the Amalekites then how does that fit in okay so yeah so oh so sorry so so the just to wrap up what I was saying and how how I connect it to any of the of the post flood giants is that uh, Ezekiel thirty one closes by God saying that He did this to the extent uh, to the purpose that no angel would uh, try this again okay so i believe god is saying that this one he's punishing the angels who committed this fornication but this this swift and devastating judgment right they were taken off the board they're out they're in the abyss for millennia where the devil's still running around but these angels got taken out immediately and sent to the abyss to be in darkness i believe god says that i did this so no one will attempt this again this so to make the judgment so severe that exactly. they wouldn't try exactly yes and that's so okay. that's what i that's why i said i take kind of a different tact for why uh, for in terms of evidence right so um to get specifically um to the amalekites because uh, i think that's a very good question i i don't have the the the, the full uh evidence of what exactly their lineages or connecting them to canaan so tbd on that and i think it's good. okay and, and and just to be funny the funny thing too is um my wife asks me that all the time too. She's always like, "When are you going to start researching the Amalekites?" <laughs> yeah. like, we need to get this, like we need that information. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a very good point. It's a very good point. And okay. um, but yeah, so more, more, more to come on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder too. So it's on my honey do list. All right, awesome. <laughs> I wonder too. So like you know Genesis three fifteen, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. If that sure. has multiple meanings. As in, yeah. okay, the seed of the woman is humanity, but it's also specifically the Messiah, and the seed of the serpent is the Nephilim indirectly as as a race, but then it's also literally his. And um, because, like, just thinking of uh, some of the things we've talked about on on this show is is uh, satanic ritual abuse and people's testimony. They say is they've literally. Um, had intercourse with Satan himself. So I just wonder if there's like a seed, literal seed that maybe Satan partook of personally, even after the flood. I don't, I don't know because he wasn't locked up in the in the abyss. But yeah, so I think to go back to the first part of your question, I think you're absolutely correct, right? That that the meaning of seed of the woman takes on two meanings. It does mean humanity, right? It does, and it also, of course, references. The Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, specifically. Um, and I believe it's the same with the seed of the serpent. That is the Nephilim, who we see, of course, in Genesis 6 after the flood, but also to a literal seed of the devil, right? The grammatical interpretation is the same for both subjects. That there's a seed of a woman that's a literal person. There's going to be a seed of the serpent that is a literal person. I just don't think it's happened yet. I believe that literal seed will be the Antichrist that he is the offspring of the devil. And something to think about on that same note is in terms of the, because you said, you know, the devil wasn't punished in Genesis six, right? He wasn't punished with him. He was, he was not sent to the abyss, 
right? However, isn't it interesting though, that when you get to Revelation 19 and Armageddon and the final battle when the Antichrist is, of course, is defeated by Christ our Lord, you get right to chapter 20 and what happens? The, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet are sent to the lake of fire, right? They're sent to the lake of fire. The devil is not. What happens is a an angel comes, a mighty angel comes down with a chain and he chains up Satan and puts him in the abyss, huh. right? So he has to suffer the same punishment same that the wow. Genesis 6 angels did, being chained in the abyss under darkness for a thousand years. And I believe it's because he fathered the Antichrist. So now that he committed that sin, wow. he has to suffer that punishment. Okay. Wow. And that's, and, and that's what you were saying, Pete, about, um, what was that saying you said? Uh, something not yet. The already <laughs> not yet <laughs> idea. Already, already not yet. So it's yeah, already Peter. written in the yeah. word, like this is to come, but it yeah. actually hasn't happened yet. And exactly. I, 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 I kind of wanted to go here maybe on another episode talking about your other book. I don't know if you're familiar with... Um, like Russ Dizdar or Pastor Doug Riggs with mm -hmm. their ministry, the SRA survivors yeah. and stuff. Well, it's been reported that that some of these survivors are actually having abuse directly with the fallen angels or even Lucifer himself. And it's and Pastor Doug Riggs had said that's part of the reason why we know we're in the last days because he's laying all his cards on the table because he knows his time is short and he's literally in our generation doing those acts that's going to put him in chains in the future did i break off yeah no right and it's all and it's it, hello yep i'm here yeah i'm no, here so can you see okay <laughs> uh can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, it's just breaking yeah. in and out. Go ahead. So it, I, I can um, hear. You. I don't know. It's we're we're definitely living in that last days, and uh, our connection is crazy for, for some reason. Yeah, you hear, you hear us okay, Ryan? <laughs> Boy, we're okay. having we're having some opposition. That's. We're having some opposition yeah, here. Yeah. I'm gonna throw up a. I'm gonna throw up a quick prayer. Uh, dear God, just help this uh, conversation Amen. to continue, and not be interrupted. I pray that uh, I didn't lose uh, the recording from earlier. Uh, that everything will be okay. In yes, Jesus' Lord. name, Amen. Um, yeah, I Amen. think I think it is continuing. Amen. One one question on that is there is there any evidence that um, Satan was uh, kind of kind of uh, goaded or, or tempted? Um, these 200 watchers to, to get into this as the tempter. I know some have postulated that, but I don't know if we have any evidence for him doing that. Well, I, I, you know, I don't think there's, I don't see uh direct evidence, but you know, it, it, I think scripture supports the fact that Satan is tempting people all the time. So why wouldn't he tempt the fallen angels and, you know, just the way I think he tempted um, the one third. Right. We're not told right. explicitly that he did that because really he drags them down. But I think there was a temptation. In fact, I think if you look, it's interesting. There's a passage, uh, you know, about Absalom, you know, in Scripture it was a very interesting figure. And I think kind of an Antichrist foreshadow in the Old Testament, you know, where he's telling the Israelites, basically saying, wouldn't it be better if I was in charge? 
and not David? Wouldn't it be, he's just trying to reason with them and say, shouldn't, wouldn't it be better if I was king? Like I could do better than what he, and I think that's almost reflecting what the devil does, right? He's at some point, he's not just scaring people. He's saying like, don't you think I should be in charge? Don't you think I could do a better job? I would help you more. I, I understand you more. So I think that, that, that type of temptation devil, the devil does all the time. So I do think, even though I don't see direct evidence, I do think that he probably played a role in instigating that the Genesis six rebellion. Yeah. Wow. Especially since he was told, right. He was the one who was told directly about the seed. Yeah. Well, and just like, and just like playing chess, you know, there's pawns on the table. So, exactly. you know, him being the King, uh, he, he's not going to directly do it because he didn't know the consequences of it. Cause it's never been done before. So I'm going to influence these pawns up here. Hey, go look at those fine women over there. You know, go go check them out. And then so exactly. he observed. It, it accomplished what he wanted. Then uh, you know, and he learned from it. So the devil yeah. loves a good poem. He loves he loves a good. He, and I find it interesting too on that same point. He loves putting <clears throat> proxies out first, and even and then really reserving himself. Because I point out too that when you get to the account in uh first Chronicles 20 and 21, where it talks about David's mighty men, right. Who are kind right. of fighting the last of the giants who are mentioned in the promised land. After the last one is killed, the David's mighty men, the very next chapter, it says Satan tempted David to take a census. So it's almost like once the last giant was going, now Satan, he's not doing anything directly. Now he immediately springs into action to do something and bring a you know a, a bad judgment. God was very upset with David over that, but so it was, it, I just find it interesting. It's like, oh, my pawns are gone. Now yeah. I have to actually step into the ring and do something directly. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, how uh, how God kind of showed his hand a little bit with Genesis 3.15. Just knowing full well that it doesn't matter. Like, I'm going to win. Exactly. I can I can give you <laughs> give away some of my cards. <laughs> Amen. And, and it's what makes him God. Right yeah. in Isaiah, right. Isaiah forty six, God is saying, "If you want to know how I am the God, El Elyon, the Most High God, right?" He says it's prophecy. He said, "I'm the only one who's declared the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that will come to pass." That that's prophecy is what distinguishes God from the fallen angels. He says, "I'm the only one who can tell you everything, right, right from the right. beginning, exactly how it's going to happen, and you're going to watch it happen no matter what you do. It's going to be fulfilled." Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, this is great, Ryan. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I hope you'd be willing to do this again. I want to get into uh, some eschatology stuff. I want to ask you a little bit about Revelation and and when John wrote it and all that. And I also want to, now that I've gone through your your first book a couple times, I want to get your second one and pick your brain on that. Yeah. So that would be great. Absolutely. Fellas, I would love to come back on. And I just want to say, you know, I, I really uh, appreciate what you guys are doing. I've listened to a number of your programs. Oh, thanks. Uh, prepping to come on here. And, you know, I was even, uh, <laughs> I've mentioned my mom a couple times in this interview, but my mom is actually over here this, today, this morning. Oh. <laughs> She's my, my wife and I went away last night just for a weekend. We went to a cabin for, for, for uh, a little Mother's Day retreat. And my yeah. mom stayed with the kids. And so I was telling her this morning at breakfast, I said, well, I said, you know, these brothers are really... I love an interview with a podcast or a program that that care that really care for the scriptures. 
because that's what it's about, right? It's mm-hmm. so. I and trust me, I love this stuff. I love talking about angels, the supernatural, yeah. time portals, quantum physics. I love all of it. I love aliens, <laughs> but you got to keep it grounded on the word, the word. of God, yeah. right? right. It, no matter where we go, and the Bible take you there. The Bible take us through it will. time everywhere, time space. But we got to keep it grounded. So I, I appreciate that you guys have such a high respect for God's word and being students, right? Because we're ever learning, right? Until we're face to face with the Lord. So um, I appreciate you having me on. Keep up the great work and um, let me know. We'll do yeah, part two. Sounds good. And, <laughs> sounds and where's where's the best place for uh, for people if you want to plug your uh, your website and stuff um, to get in yeah, contact with absolutely. you? Absolutely. So uh, my website is judgmentofthenephilim.com. That's uh, one website there. I have the books. I've also produced two documentaries. Um, I have study guides. It's all there on the website. They're in DVD. They're in digital on demand as well. Um, my Facebook, my YouTube, and my Instagram are all, all Judgment of Ephilim. Okay. So you can find me there. I have a um, YouTube series. I have videos. I, have, I, do a, I did a weekly show for about a year and a half, Thursday Night Theology, that covers oh, yeah. all these topics and much, much more. I have programs on the Ephilim, so it's all there. You can find it. Feel free to reach out, ask questions, whatever you like. Perfect. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Appreciate it, yeah, man. Thanks for having me. We'll do it God again. Have a good weekend. All right. All right bye-bye. Absolutely. Bye. podcast thanks again for tuning in this week don't forget to like share and subscribe give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform and we hope to see you again back next week if you have any questions or comments for the show or just want to get in touch with us feel free to do so at the days of noah podcast at gmail.com take care and god bless